The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, welcome back. So, I'd like to speak a little bit about uh, mindfulness of death. So, there is a um, um, Hindu epic um, called Mahabharata, and in there, um, the wise person Yudhisthira is asked, what is the most amazing thing in all of life? And he says that that a man sees all others die around him, never thinks he will die. And in some ways, considering that we're all intelligent human beings, rational creatures, this is indeed, this observation is indeed amazing. Because in many ways, yeah, yeah, we know we're going to die, right? But we don't know. Really, we don't live our lives. We don't act as if we're going to die. We usually act as if we're going to live forever, um, as if death will never come. And Daniel Becker, who was the author of um, The Denial Denial of Death in 1974, book that won the nonfiction Pulitzer Prize. How many people are familiar with the, with that book? By the way, a few people. Yeah, it's it's a great and dense reading. So he's actually the person who whose book um, started the field of terror management theory, which I'll talk about in a moment. But he doesn't mince words. He um, to share a paragraph. He says, "This is a paradox. A human is out of nature and hopelessly in it. We are dual, up in the stars." and yet housed in a heart-pumping, breath-gasping body that once belonged to a fish and still carries the gill marks to prove it. A human is literally split in two. We have an awareness of our own splendid uniqueness in that we stick out of nature with a towering majesty, and yet we go back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. It is a terrifying dilemma to be in and to have to live with. The lower animals are, of course, prepared this painful contradiction as they lack a symbolic identity and the self-consciousness that goes with it. They merely act and move reflexively as they are driven by their instincts. So that's essentially there. We have the awareness um, of our majesty and, and we die and, and it creates a terrifying dilemma. So so that essentially what terror management theory um, suggests that there is a basic psychological conflict that arises from our self-preservation instinct um, while realizing that death is inevitable and to some extent actually unpredictable. We have no idea when it's going to happen. and You might think we do, but we actually really we don't. Um, So that conflict, which arises again from self-preservation instinct on one hand, and realizing that death is inevitable and mostly unpredictable. So this conflict, inner conflict, produces terror that others have already brought up uh, earlier in the first session. And this terror is managed 
by either embracing cultural beliefs, which I'll talk about more, or symbolic systems. There are various symbolic systems that act to counter the biological reality uh, to f- for us to find more durable mean- ways of meaning and value and, and ideas of permanence or belief in permanence. So with that, I'd like to share a few um, what's called the uh, immortality stories. And this is uh, based on the work of Stephen Cave from his a book called Immortality. He's is um, a philosopher. So, so he posits that there, there are typically four different immortality stories that us humans we tell ourselves in order to deal with terror. This terror that arises in order to uh, deal with uh, with uh, um, manage this terror. So the first one uh, he calls the elixir story which is the oldest form of the immortality story. The idea is um, there is an elixir of life or fountain of youth, and we can just physically avoid death and stay young. And in the human history, the ancient Egyptians and the Chinese, um, they felt that their science and um, technological advancement was was so so ahead of is so far ahead that uh, defying death was just right around the corner we're almost there we've we've got it and lest we think that it was only the ancient egyptians and the chinese in the present day we have that in our culture too there are plenty of supplements and anti-aging investments in this very silicon valley of ours um to defy death. Um, there is this company, it's called the Neurohacker Collective that sells supplements um, that's supposed to make you live longer and, and not age, etc., etc. There's fasting, research and fasting, the various ways to just live longer, just not die this, or die a lot later. We, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to do that. So that's the first version of the immortality story that oh we're just gonna stay alive longer the second version of immortality story we tell ourselves according to stephen cave is called the resurrection story so the idea here is that okay so if we can't extend our lives if we have to die then maybe we can just rise again and live again and historically uh, resurrection is a part of the Christian um, Christianity and also in Islam and Judaism. It shows up also, the idea of resurrection. And lest we think that it's only in, in, uh, in theistic religions, um, in our zeitgeist, <coughs> cryopreservation is another way that people uh, consider rising up <coughs> And there's this company, for example, called Alcor that um, freezes whole bodies or brains in liquid nitrogen, awaiting a future a future where they could be um, brought back to life. And in fact, this company, as of November 30th, 2018, had 1,678 patients frozen. Now you know 
where to look up on Google. Just kidding. Um, so that's the idea of, okay, so if we can die, okay, maybe we can come back to life. Uh, and also the myth of I, uh, Frank, Frankenstein is another myth of, 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 as part of this denial of death. The third immortality story, according to Stephen Cave, um, is the story of soul. Um, so here I want to be actually quite respectful and careful of bringing this one up and, and sharing, with it, sh- sharing it with you, that um, I think the way to engage with this one especially is to really question ourselves if there is a belief that we have about the permanence and about soul, etc., is it because of denial of death? Is it because there's a sense of, oh, we, we just cannot fathom not existing anymore, that, oh, oh, yeah, let's not worry about it. There's a soul. It will live forever. So that's a nuanced way to bring more um, uh, gentle curiosity. And I know that this, for me, was the case. Years ago, when I started my practice, um, d- decade and a half ago, um, Mindfulness of death actually was a big part of my practice, then my uh, a big part of my daily life practice. And what came up for me was because of my upbringing and background, there was a belief in in soul. So, so for me, it was really helpful to actually see that there was a fear of not existing, as there was a fear of death. That's why I was clinging to the idea of soul. Um, so. I invite um, curiosity, if there is a belief, why is, is that belief there? Um, so some, some uh, gentleness with that investigation. So what um, Stephen Cave suggests is that historically there has been a religious belief in afterlife and also um, not just in theistic religions, but Plato and Hindus um, believe that the obstacle to immortality um, was, um, that, that, oh, sorry, that the body was the obstacle to immortality. And in order to, to uh, become pure spirit, you know, the main goal of life was to become pure spirit. So let's just, oh, let's, the, the, uh, we can give up on the body altogether. We don't really need the body because there's this essence, there is this atta, there's this soul that's going to to um, live forever. So, again, lest we think that that's part of uh, religious beliefs or or beliefs of just Plato's and in uh, and, and, and time of um, uh, uh, Plato and the Hindus, the intertechnological zeitgeist nowadays, there is the idea of mind uploading um, in whole brain emulation, WBE, and their organizations like Carbon Copies that hope to create accurate simulation of um, uh, computational models of neural tissue to which then uh, the scale of a complete brain and so, so the neural t- uh, so the simulations and the scale of the whole brain and basically your memories and who you are and and the way you act and etc all of that could be uploaded into this neural model so you whoever you are can live forever in this silicon 
that's another idea of quote unquote, and I put soul here in quotes. Again, it's, it's the idea here is it is symbolic way that you continue to live, whether it's, it's this thing, this being that is you, that's the real you, not your body, but this thing that's the real you and continues, or the agglomeration of your memories, your who you are, the way you act that can continue to live in silicon. So, oh yeah, you continue, even though this body thing is going to rot. So that's uh, another one, another immortality story. And the last immortality story is the legacy story. Again, it's, it's a symbolic belief that, okay, so if, if you, if your body and if, if this, this center, this, this essence thing that is you is not going to live, continue to live, then maybe you'll just be remembered um, in, you live in the memory of other people. And an example here um, is of Achilles given the choice in Troy uh, to go home and live a long, happy life or stay and um, fight and die in Troy. We know what he chose. So in history, many people have been inspired to, um, uh, to pursue immortality through fame and through cultural legacy. And of course, in our zeitgeist, it's so much easier for people to create their own uh, uh, statues through tweets and Instagrams and create their own legacy by capturing every moment of our lives uh, in these platforms. And um, yet, many people consider this route to immortality to be uh, a little too indirect. And Woody Allen has famously said, I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. <laughs> so, so I just offer those immortality stories very briefly for you to consider if, if, as, as you reflect, as you sit with, with mindfulness of death, if there are these immortality stories that... Um, are part of finding comfort and not really dealing with with um, with death with the with this body um, and this this formation this body and who this person is not living on in different forms so and the last time I taught this uh, somebody asked oh so how about the idea of reincarnation, is that an immortality story? So what I'd like to share here is that there's a distinction between um, rebirth and reincarnation. So rebirth is what, uh, in Buddhism, uh, there, there's the belief in rebirth. Reincarnation is more in Hinduism. So what's the difference between the two? So the best way to understand, uh, actually, let, let me talk about the difference. So, so the idea of reincarnation is that it's the same soul or atta or essence that gets reincarnated again. Whereas rebirth, it's not, there is no soul or atta or center. The idea is that the karmic potentiality finds a, uh, finds a new birth it gets born in a new shape okay so what the heck does that mean so think about um 
Think about a billiard ball. Think about a billiard ball. It's moving. It has kinetic energy. Um, and suppose it's a, a green ball. It's moving pretty fast. Okay, so it's moving pretty fast, this green ball. And let's say this green ball comes and hits a red ball. And the green ball stops. And now the red ball is in motion. Okay, what has been transferred is the kinetic energy. Right? It's not the same ball anymore. But the kinetic energy has been transferred. So think of that as rebirth. It's not the same ball anymore. It's the karmic potentiality of the actions that have found a new expression in a different way. Okay? Now, reincarnation would be as if this red this green ball was moving across and we just dumped a bucket of green a, a, a red paint on it. And now it's continuing to move along. It's still the same ball. It's just now red. It's not green anymore. Okay, so now that's reincarnation. It's the same ball. Okay, so reincarnation is not the belief in Buddhism. In Buddhism, there is no center, there's no self. It all goes away. However, your karmic potentialities, the actions, what, what you create in the world, those continue to, to live on and find new ways of, of showing up. Does that make sense? So in that way, Buddhism does not subscribe to the immortality stories. Because whatever is you, it all disappears, dissolves, except for the karmic actions, the, 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 the effects of the actions in the world. Does that make sense before I move on? Yeah, okay. So, moving on... <coughs> Right. So, right. So, I want to come back to a couple of quotes from Ernest Becker, the author of *The Denial of Death*. And um, he says, "We literally drive ourselves into a blind obliviousness with social games, psychological tricks, personal preoccupations, so far removed from the reality of our situation." that they are forms of madness, but madness all the same. And so, so basically in order to deal with the uh, terror management, there are these immortality stories we tell ourselves and also the way that we act in the world is by basically playing these psychological games. Um, I'll, I'll say a little more about it. Here's another, tr- uh, another quote by him, which I really like. Modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness or spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. As awareness calls for types of heroic dedication that their culture is no longer provides for them, society contrives to help them forget. So what I really appreciate in what he's really astutely bringing up, and he doesn't mince words, is that this kind of heroic, this this awareness, n- in order for us not to, to basically drink or drug ourselves or shop ourselves into oblivion? There is a heroic awareness that's required. Remember the word awareness, mindfulness, sati. There is an awareness that's required. Um, that you need to have a heroic dedication, as he puts it, to a sense of awareness that this show is not going to go on forever. Otherwise, the society and the culture will contrive to help you forget. So, 
I want to talk about next a few reasons why actually Maranasati. So Maranasati in, in Buddhist practice is the term used for mindfulness of death. Marana is um, Mara is the Lord of Death. Maranasati is mindfulness. So mindfulness of death, Maranasati. So the idea here is that instead of being aware, it be, being um, instead of running away from it, that we turn towards it. We become aware of this truth and and accept the truth of death, both for ourselves and for others. And just to say that maranasati, mindfulness of death, this awareness and acceptance of, of death as as natural and normal, it doesn't mean that we... Um, we um, turn away from grief and we are not supposed to experience any grief if anybody close to us dies. That's not the idea here. Grief and the five stages of grief, um, the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the stages of grief are completely natural and normal. Um, and doing the practice of Marnasati doesn't mean that you're not supposed to feel grief. The grief might actually feel different and I can share with you that before my own practice years ago, when I lost people that I cared about, the grief was much more complicated. There was a lot more anger and bargaining and you know the various stages and and a lot more depression and sadness and just all the various stages of grief um, and after years of practice, there is still there. I still miss my mom who passed away two years ago, two, two days ago, two years ago. Um, there's still missing her and sadness, but the, the quality of the grief has been very different. There's more of an acceptance of truth of impermanence. Um, and, and yet um, the emotions are there and, and, and to work with them and not to think that uh, to be a good Mindfulness practitioner, to be a good Buddhist, you're not supposed to experience any grief. Please do not leave this hall feeling that way or thinking that way. It's not about that. Welcoming whatever emotions, whatever is happening, whatever is arising naturally and with more awareness, with more clarity. So, so I wanted to talk about some of the gifts of the Maranasati practice, uh, mindfulness of death. <clears throat> the first is that it, allow, it aligns our life with our values. And that is a really important one. So the first gift of the, this practice of mindfulness of death, keeping death clearly um, in our lives, as again, as Carlos Castaneda says, as if a wise advisor on our shoulders. Um, it helps us live our life more aligned with our values. So what does that mean? There was a study by Daniel Kahneman um, in 2004, which showed up in, um, appeared in journal Science, and um, th they surveyed a group of women um, asking how much satisfaction they derived from their daily activities. So you would think 
if it's a daily activity, if it's something that they choose to do, if these women choose to, you know, this is their free time, they choose to do something, right? That what you choose to do correlates with what gives you satisfaction, right? You would think that. And for, for yourself, you would think that too, right? Okay. Well, not so. It turns out that they said um, they said they would they reported they uh, deriving more satisfaction from prayer, worship, and meditation from watching television. That's what they reported their self-report. However, they spent more than five times watching television than engaging in these spiritual activities. Okay. You think, wow, five times, that's a lot. Okay, if anything, this study was an understatement, actually. The um, Bureau of, uh, the American Time Use Survey from the Bureau of Labor Statistics in 2014 uh, suggests that an, an average American adult sh- uh, spends 20 times longer watching television than religious and spiritual activities. So sometimes, somewhere between five times to 20 times more is how much more time an average American spends on TV than spiritual activities, whereas we tend to report that we actually like, uh, we, we get more satisfaction. So just actually check in with yourself. Do you derive more satisfaction meditating when you meditate? Or socializing. Let's, uh, that's another thing, actually. In this survey, people, um, I think they spent four times, uh, in the, uh, the labor of labor statistics, people spent four times longer watching television than socializing and communicating. And you know socializing and communicating tends to be more nourishing, right? We know that as human beings than just kind of watching television. But they spend four times more and then 20 times more than than. Uh, um, than, uh, than religious activities. So just check in, you know, whether it's television or Netflix or, or surfing the web or doing endless Google searches or whatever uh, your thing is, Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, anyone, um, how much time you end up spending on those and how much satisfaction it actually gives you at the end of the day compared to spending the same amount of time. Um, Meditating, for example. So it turns out that, that the secret to, to rebalancing and working with this misalignment problem, so this is called the misalignment problem, right? You have a certain values and goals in your life and you know what gives you satisfaction, how you want to live your life, and the way you actually you end up spending your time is not aligned with your values. <coughs> so the way to to work with this misalignment problem is not to just say, stop it. (laughs) It doesn't quite work. Or making a resolution, New Year's resolution. The, The stick method does not work so much. What actually does work is the carrot method to raise the scarcity of your most valuable resource into your consciousness, really raise the scarcity of your time. I don't have much time. And how do you do that? 
Awareness of death. Thank you. That's how you do it. Mindfulness of death. Exactly. You. Um, it's also called. <clears throat> what what also brings up is is called samvega, which is spiritual urgency. <clears throat> Excuse me. A sense of urgency that time is short. Time is short. I don't have so much time. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll yeah. I'll, I'll die when I'm ninety, a hundred, and a peaceful family around me. You you have no idea. You really have no idea. I'd like to share with you a quote, one of my favorite quotes from Sam Harris um, from Death and the Present Moment. He says, Most of us do our best not to think about death, and there's always part of our minds that knows this can't go on forever. Part of us always knows that we're just a doctor's visit away or a phone call away from being starkly reminded of the fact of our own mortality or of those closest to us. The one thing people tend to realize at moments like this is that we have wasted a lot of time when life was normal. And it's not just what we did with our time. It's not just that we spent too much time working or compulsively checking email. It's that we cared about the wrong things. We regret that we cared about, we we regret what we cared about. Our attention was bound up in petty concerns year after year when life was normal. This is a paradox, of course, because we all know this epiphany is coming. Don't you know this is coming? You know this. And yet, if you're like most people, you'll spend most of your time in life tacitly presuming you'll live forever like watching a bad movie for the fourth time or bickering with your spouse. These things only make sense in light of eternity. These things only make sense in light of eternity. And we do so much that really only makes sense if we had eternal life, but we don't have eternal life. We don't. I also really appreciate him bringing, doing things, and and when something happens, when we get a wake-up call, thinking back about the time when life was normal, when life was normal. This is something that I've dropped into my own contemplation, actually. I, I do death contemplation every day, by the way. It's my daily practice. So, and I think, wow, this is when life is normal, relatively normal, you know, considering there is no call from the doctor saying, you know, I have, uh, have limited time yet. But so this is a time that life is normal. How do I want to spend my time when life is n- relatively normal right now? So moving on to the benefits of, of Maranasati, mindfulness of death. Again, the first one was to align our life with our values so that we actually live more fully according to our intentions, what is important to us, whatever it might be, whatever your values might be. The second, to live without fear of death for our own sake. In this way, actually, if we can make peace with our own death, then we're not going to spend so much time, so much energy, 
in the typical escape activities that we talked about. Um, and it frees up a lot of psychic energy. And also just a sense of fearing death, fearing what is, what is natural and normal. When we can give up, we, when we don't have to live in the sense of fear, there's a sense of ease. There's a sense of peace that arises, which doesn't mean that we want to die. You know, life is sweet. So this practice doesn't make us um, suicidal or wanting to, to die. But when death comes, there is a sense of peace. And in the meanwhile, um, there is living more more according to our values. Another benefit is to live without fear of death for the sake of our loved ones. So when we work with our own fear, when we don't have a fear of death, we can be more available actually to support people that we love and care about in their passing in order to be present, fully present for them if we are terrified of death, we're going to be trying to make it okay and it's not okay for them to die and please don't go, etc., etc. But if we have a sense of peace and ease, we can hold more space for them. And similarly, if we are the ones who are actually dying and if we have peace with our own death um, and have a sense of curiosity and peace and ease about the process, it's the biggest gift we can give to our loved ones. It's the biggest gift we can give to them. Um, holding their hands through the process. So when my mom passed away a couple years ago, um, he, um, she, she had no fear of death and she had had actually a near death experience years ago before I had lived. and. And whether or not you believe in near-death experiences or not, beliefs aside, um, she had a fearlessness about her about death, and she had dementia, and yet she was completely clear about about what was happening towards the end. There was a lot of lucidity. She was saying goodbye to everyone, to her friends. There was no fear. She was holding my hand through her death. Like, it's okay. It's a sense of peace and ease. And for me, having done this practice a lot, I was holding her hand and, and calming the, the rest of the family that it's okay, it's natural, it's normal. So, so it's a gift that we were giving each other. And it's a beautiful gift to be able to give someone you love when you have a sense of peace and ease. This practice, another value of it, I would say the fourth value, is that it sharpens your lived experience. So if you've been practicing mindfulness, you know that mindfulness tends to sharpen your experience of colors, shapes, and just your, your experience, your, your life experience becomes more vivid. Now this practice, especially, even more than the other practices, I would say mindfulness of death practice, and there is especially one um, Maranasati practice, which I will teach you maybe before we take the lunch break, so that you can practice over lunch. 
I would say, is one that really keenly sharpens <coughs> the um, the sense of um, your experience of life. And and just to uh, put a bookmark, it's the practice of this could be my last breath, this could be my last morsel of food, this could be my last step. It's it's really the immediacy. This could be it. This could be it to really bring the sense of death right here. It's not, oh, somewhere down the line and I don't know, a hundred years. It's right here, right now. What if it were here? To really sharpen your perception of your life, your, your aliveness right here. Another value of this practice is awakening in life through practicing non-clinging. So death contemplation, the mindfulness of death, is a practice of letting go the practice of learning to let go. It's not ours. It's not yours. You're not going to take it with you. Um, there's this song by Dido um, called a Life for Rent, and there's a line from it that goes, if my life is for rent, nothing I have is truly mine. Guess what? Our lives are for rent. We don't own Nothing you have is truly yours. You're just using, you're just wearing what you're wearing. You're kind of borrowing it, you're renting. Everything is for rent. We don't take any of it with us. So learning, really learning and contemplating that allows a sense of freedom and ease and the letting go during life. We cling less. We cling less to things. The sixth value, the sixth gift of Maranasati is is um, dying fearlessly as a gift to ourselves. So previously I talked about living fearlessly. So when you give, le- you let go of the fear of death, you live fearlessly. There is no energy spent suppressing. So now, if there is no fear of death, you can prepare for the moment of death again with a caveat that no matter how much you prepare, you don't know what it's going to look like, right? You may be conscious, you may not be, you might be an accident, you may not be, you know, we, we cannot, we can prepare, but we can't perfectly choreograph and plan. So letting go of that planning also. And yet, if, if we have the privilege to be alert and awake um, during our moment of death, to actually die fearlessly, not terrified, like, ah! Instead, actually um, being curious about the process, this mystery that no one has come back to really tell us about um, all the way. So, so as a gift to ourselves to actually, who knows, maybe even enjoy this, this transition into the unknown, what, what it might be, who knows? We don't know, it's a mystery. And and we don't want to actually say, well, we we know what's going to happen. The body's going to die, and then nothing happens. Blackness. How do you know? Or oh yes, I'm going to live on. And there's a soul. Well, how do you know? We just don't know. There's a sense of embracing the don't know mind. Re- we really, really don't know. And I hope to do in practice this afternoon with with not knowing. But here we go. So, um, and as I mentioned. Number seven, dying fearlessly as a gift to our loved ones. Um, so as we die fearlessly, as we 
can support others um, and be supported. And so this is the parallel to, to living without fear so that you can actually discuss death with your loved ones if you don't have a fear of it. Um, you know, I've, I've met people um, in, in the um, retreat, the, the uh, death contemplation retreat that I taught. I remember one person saying, you know, I want to talk to my children about my death, but there's just a sense of fear that I can't. So, so living and dying without fear for the sake of our loved ones. Another benefit, the eighth benefit, is um, there is potential of waking up at the moment of dying, actually. Waking up as in liberation, as in nibbana, the teaching of liberation. And there is a teaching um, that um, was given by Venerable Sariputta, uh, the one of the attendants, senior attendants of, of uh, the Buddha to um, a layperson, Anathapindika, and Sariputta goes to, to Anathapindika's uh, deathbed, and he's very sick, and gives him this beautiful, beautiful teaching of letting go, letting go, systematic letting go, letting go of this, letting go of that, letting go of sight, vision, this, thoughts, every, just systematic letting go um, in the moment of death. And um, the the story in the suttas goes that he starts to cry, and Sariputta says, "Are you dying? Are you in pain? Are you are you faltering? What's happening?" Anathapindika says, "No, I've never heard such beautiful teachings of just liber- liberation, the moment of death. So, so, um, so there is a potential, and and also in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a lot of teachings about liberating at the moment of death if if there's a there's a practice for it." The ninth gift of this practice is when death is not feared or it's not considered a mistake or an injustice, we can be more grateful for having had a chance to live um, that we've ever been conscious. So a sense of gratitude and appreciation for this life arises. Stephen Cave puts this beautifully that, in fact, if you think how unlikely it is that the book of your life should have ever come to be written, all of the coincidences from the beginning of life that brought you here. The proper attitude is not fear that it might come to an end, but gratitude that it should have been written at all. So there is no room to complain how short life is. The only thing that matters is that you try to make it a good story. So instead of feeling that it's an injustice and why is it ending so soon instead of having a sense of entitlement you can turn it around to a sense of gratitude that it ever was that we ever came to be how unlikely that was Ajahn Chah the famous Thai forest meditation master puts it with the teaching of when you understand when you know that The glass is already broken. Every moment with it is precious. So he shared this teaching for a goblet that he had, that if, that he said, you know, if I, 
it's in my mind it's already broken you know the, the wind can knock it off but knowing that it's already broken every moment with it is even more precious so each of us are the broken goblet it's only a matter of time for us to be knocked off the shelf so every moment is precious the tenth is metta and compassion and forgiveness arise with this practice there is this beautiful teaching in Dhammapada that we usually actually talk about the first verse not the second verse and the first verse I'll read it it's probably very familiar to you hatred never ends through hatred by non-hate alone does it end this is an ancient truth this is the first part we're mostly familiar with here's the second part we usually don't hear many do not realize that we here must die for those who realize this quarrels end so there is a sense of appreciating understanding that we're all siblings in birth old age sickness and death and when we really penetrate this fighting and having quarrels it just doesn't make sense it, it, something gives way something drops the 11th we're getting to the end of the list there are only 12 i've made up i i have come up with so 11th is death gives life meaning so consider and question your assumptions if you would about death and instead quite let's consider the tedium of immortality we there is a story of a buddhist story of immortals um lying in a ditch in mud not lifting a finger not moving not doing anything and the idea is cuz they have time they can do it another time there is there will be time so it is life it is the impermanence of it that actually gives it meaning gives it the um that the drive to 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 do in limited time steven cave the philosopher puts this um more amusingly says millions long for immortality who don't know what to do with themselves on a rainy sunday afternoon and another thing also to consider is um really with the tedium of immortality that that um has been expressed in in different art forms of really considering inhabiting someone who has lived for 300 500 years and they've seen it all done it all it's like ah oh, it's it's tiring it's now what the last and the 12th benefit i would say is um it gives us a chance to to really consider living our life as an offering and i like to keep this one m- not to explain so that each of us find our own meaning of what does it mean for us to live our precious amazing unfathomable mysterious life in this human form to live it in its brevity 
in its finiteness, to live it fully as an offering. What does that mean for each and every one of us? So, one more piece I'd like to share with you, and that's on different approaches to death, the Eastern and Western approach. Here it is. And this is from um, an article that showed up in... um, in uh, Tricycle Magazine in 2014 by Rona Kabatsnik. And it's called The Sea of Sorrow. And it's about um, how she, uh, she's a psychologist who volunteered the survivors um, in Thailand um, on... The, the when the the tsunami hit in on December twenty sixth two thousand four. So, <clears throat> I'd like to read a couple of paragraphs for you. So she writes: There were shots of bikini-clad corpses on beaches and stunned survivors frantically searching among them for loved ones. Video clips showed demolished homes and hotels, capsized fishing boats, crushed cars, and acres of debris. Seawater still gushed from broken storefront windows and down streets and alleys. The Indian Ocean tsunami turned out to be one of the most devastating natural disasters in recorded history, leaving an estimated um, uh, 230,000 dead. 125,000 injured, 46,000 missing, and 1.7 million displaced. In that idyllic tropical setting, the day after Christmas, who could have imagined that this would be the day that I die? That Thai way of grieving from what I could see was composed reflecting what was known as Jai Yen, a cool heart. Mourners appeared to see death as part of life, not as an injustice or dreadful mistake even when it was unexpected or swift. Expressing emotion wasn't an issue for Westerners, who had Jai Ron, a hot heart. Many felt angry and betrayed by the tsunami and by the experts, who didn't detect it in time to transmit warnings. They should have known how irresponsible they they declared. Parents bitterly blamed themselves for not being able to protect their children from death. I am a bad parent. It is my fault, they confessed, as if they were personally responsible for the natural disaster. This difference between the two two perspectives demonstrates one of the Buddha's key teachings. Our minds are habituated to relate to suffering by resisting it through blame, bitterness, anger, resentment. That resistance is what the Buddha called the second arrow, which follows the first arrow, the direct experience of pain. So much additional suffering comes from believing that things shouldn't be this way, when in fact, they are that way. Although tragedy and loss feel personal, they are not. Suffering and loss are built into the human condition. I spoke with one local woman in her late 20s who stood beside three stacked caskets containing her young son, daughter, and husband, Pentamada 
Pentamachat, she whispered in response to my condolences. This is natural. This is nature. This is natural. This is nature. So I'd like to share with you now the guided meditation. This could be my last moment of breath. Actually, I'm going to pause for a moment, take a breather. Any questions? I've just given a lot of content made up. This, this is the most content you'll receive the whole day. The rest will be a lot more interactive. Any questions <coughs> or comments before we go into guided meditation? Is there a summary? I made it up. This is <laughs> maybe I'll write a book. <laughs> I didn't make it up, but I've collected it based on my press. So it it it, uh, it it would be good for me to write it up and put it online somewhere. But it's it's not it, it's not yet. So um, yeah, maybe check my website. Maybe in a couple month or two, maybe I would have written it up and posted it. Yeah. Yeah, this is recorded, but I think she wanted it in written form. But yeah, this is definitely recorded. <coughs> Any other questions or comments? Yeah, please. Uh, so I was just reminded of uh, a quote from Steve Jobs, uh, and he says, "If this were the last day of my death, would I do what I was going to do?" Uh, and he says, "Even too many days have passed when uh, the answer is not satisfactory, then I know I must make a change." Right. Yeah. If this were the last day of my life, would I, would I still be doing what I'm doing? Yeah. I, I've heard that him saying that before, and it's very wise. It's, he's really using the power of death, impermanence, to align his life with his values. Yeah. Number one. <laughs> Benefit number one. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So how about we stand up and stretch for a moment? <sighs> been sitting for a while. See what your body needs. So the guided meditation we'll do will be about 20 minutes and we'll take our lunch break at 12.30 for an hour. But this will give you the chance if you wanted to, to practice with this, kind of mull over it. Ah. Oh. Oh. 
you're ready, <coughs> coming back to... Actually, I need some water. I hope 